Well, this morning we will begin a 10-week study. This is Paul's first letter to Timothy. And we're calling it Fight the Good Fight, which is based on Paul's instruction to Timothy in chapter 6. He tells Timothy to flee evil and to pursue righteousness. He commands him to fight the good fight of the faith. And I chose that because in many ways that's the theme of the entire letter. How do we, as God's church, fight the good fight? What does that mean for us? And it seemed like a good way to begin a new year. And so let's do it. Let's jump in. Verse 1, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior, And of Christ Jesus, our hope. So this is a letter. It's written, claims to be written by the Apostle Paul. He begins most of his letters in the same way. He's taking care to rest his own authority in the will of God. Okay? No one in the Bible claims the title of apostle for himself. Which means that there are no true apostles alive today. The apostles were named directly by Christ Jesus, whom Paul mentions three times in the first two verses. Uh, Sort of a side note, but I wanted to make that clear. Verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus Our Lord. This is a standard greeting, but notice the personal touch. He calls Timothy my true child. In Greek, the word is legitimate. You are my legitimate son. So, what's interesting about that is that Timothy had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, meaning that most of the Jewish people would have considered Timothy to be illegitimate. But Paul claims him as a true son, a legitimate son, because he had led Timothy to Christ Jesus. And so, just kind of a personal note there. Verse 3. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul says that he left Timothy in Ephesus to help guide the church in his absence. Timothy already knows why Paul left him there. Which means that Paul expects this letter to be read by the churches. So this is not a private letter to Timothy. This is an open letter to Timothy. He's telling the churches that Timothy has the authority to challenge false teaching in Paul's name. And this is the first and probably the most important problem in the church that Paul confronts in the letter. We don't know exactly what these people were teaching, but 
it's clear from the letter that the people causing the trouble are probably leaders in the church, maybe even elders. This is pretty serious. And what this means for Timothy is that fighting the good fight of the faith is first a battle of doctrine, of theology. He's saying that what we teach in the church matters. And in fact, the integrity of the church and the blessing of God actually depends on it. We need to know the difference between good doctrine and bad doctrine, especially our leaders. And this is why in our denomination and and many others, um, pastors and elders and deacons all require significant training and testing in Bible knowledge and theology. Because we have to know the difference between good teaching and bad teaching. Because failure in this has led to false religions like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hebrew Israelites, and many others. It has led to heresies like universalism, oneness theology, prosperity teaching, and many others. It has also led churches and entire denominations to abandon the good things that they once believed in favor of modern ideas that are contrary to Scripture. That's what led to the Presbyterian split 50 years ago. It's causing a split in the Methodist church right now because doctrine matters. Why does it matter? Paul tells us in verse 5. He says, The aim of our charge, our mission, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What's interesting about this is, especially if you've kind of grown up Presbyterian, which is not very many of you, to be honest, but if this was you, you might be tempted to think that doctrine is sort of a head thing and not a heart thing. And what's interesting is, and that's, that's a risk, right, that theology could become only a head thing to, to sort of pride oneself in your knowledge That is a problem in some of our churches. Some of our Christians have that issue. But for Paul, notice he's saying that good theology is actually a heart issue. He's saying that Christian love is impossible without it. Do you see that? We can't love God if we don't know who God is. We're not capable of loving others well if we are committed to false teaching. Let me give you an example. Some Christians believe that if you have enough faith, God will heal any disease. Have you heard that teaching? Have you seen that? If you have enough faith, as if faith is like this magical thing that if you just get enough of it, God will have to do whatever you ask Him to do. And so, if you have enough faith, God's going to heal you. Now, that's false teaching. 
The Bible doesn't teach that. Not in the way that people think he does. But I want you to imagine a brother or sister in Christ is dealing with a chronic or serious illness. And you as a Christian believe that false teaching. You would be tempted to think that the disease that they're struggling with is their fault. That they must not have enough faith. And therefore God is not able to do anything about their illness. Would you love them well in that instance? No. And this type of thing is hurting God's church. According to Paul, there's a lot more at stake than we realize. Purity of heart. A clean conscience. A sincere faith. In fact, that's a summary of what it means to be human, right? What we feel, what we think, what we do. He's saying that what we believe affects all of that. It matters. Our humanity falls apart when we believe the wrong things about God and His Word. Verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So this now gives us a clue about the kind of false teaching that's going on in Ephesus. It was some kind of distortion or preoccupation with the Old Testament law. This was a common problem in the early church. It was also the spirit of the age, almost as a form of entertainment. People loved having spiritual debates and discussions with one another. But it could have a very damaging effect on the church for leaders to say things that were beyond or contrary to what Scripture actually teaches, especially if you think about it in the early days of the church when everything was so fresh. Verse 8. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So Paul begins here to correct this error, and he does that by explaining the purpose of God's law. Used properly, he says, the law is good. Which means that used improperly, the law is dangerous. And Paul actually spends a lot of time in his letters to the Galatian church and the Roman church defending this very idea. And throughout church history, we have identified what we believe to be good teaching from using Paul's letters to emphasize three proper uses of God's law. The first use of the law, we, we talk about it as a mirror. It shows us our own sinfulness 
and our need for forgiveness. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is civil. Okay? It has been used as a standard for protecting people from the harmful actions of others. So civil authorities use it in that way. And then the third use of the law is as a guide. It's a guide to help people who already love God to know how to obey Him better. So those are the three uses that we can get from Paul's letters. But it's clear here in this verse that Paul has in mind the first use of the law, possibly the second, but he says clearly that the law is for the lawless. It's for sinners. And then he gives some specific examples. Okay, He says, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. Okay? Now I want you to look carefully at that list. More than likely, your focus is on one or two of those groups of people. And we are going to talk about the specifics in a moment. But first, I want you to notice that Paul gives an example from the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth commandments in order. Did you catch that? It's not a random list. Some of Paul's lists are a little more random than this one. This one's very specific. The fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother. And Paul gives a particularly heinous example. Okay? The exact opposite of honoring your father and mother would be to strike your father or mother. The sixth commandment, do not murder. That's pretty clear. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And Paul actually divides this one into two examples. One covers sort of heterosexual sin. The other is much more specific. Specifically, he says men who practice homosexuality. The eighth commandment is do not steal. And Paul here uses what I think would be the most extreme example he could have come up with. Stealing another human being to enslave them. The ninth commandment is do not lie. And Paul here, or bear false witness, Paul gives two examples. Private and public. Lying and perjury. And I want you to see this. Because very often we will hear Christians, and maybe you've said this, we will say things like, all sins are the same. Have you thought that or heard that or argued that before? In one sense, that is absolutely true. All sin is destructive. All sin is evil. All sin deserves the wrath of God. All sinners, equally, apart from the grace of God, are equally doomed. Okay, So in that sense, when we talk about sin, there is an equality there. It's all... It's all um, 
It's all unholy. It's all um, destructive. Okay? But practically speaking, all sin is not the same in terms of immediate real-life consequences, right? I mean, let's be practical about it. Some sins are more heinous than others. They are more destructive. For instance, Jesus teaches clearly, we just studied it in the Sermon on the Mount, that hating someone breaks the sixth commandment, and yet Jesus is not arguing that murder is equally destructive to hatred, right? I mean, that's, that's not his argument. Obviously, murder is far more destructive than just hating someone in your heart. But with that in mind, what I want you to notice is that Paul seeks to correct our understanding of the law by drawing a sharp contrast between what the law can and cannot do by listing these specific sins. He is specifically mentioning in his mind, and this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, okay? This is God's word. He is specifically mentioning some of the most heinous actions a person can commit in each of those specific commandments. Beating your parents, murder, enslaving another human being. And yes, he includes homosexuality in that list. And we should pause here and focus on that one for a moment because it's the only one on that list that modern readers question. It's the only one. Everyone in our culture agrees that all that other stuff is bad for society. Everybody agrees on that. The only one that gives us pause is homosexuality. Because, as you're aware, people's opinions regarding sexual sin in general have shifted dramatically over the past 60 or 70 years. So we've got to talk about it. What is Paul saying? Well, he uses a word here that literally means men who lie with men. That's what the word means. This is not, as some have argued, a reference to male prostitution or pedophilia. There have been some modern interpreters that try to define that word in that way in an effort to excuse homosexuality. But if you just kind of look up the word homosexuality in the Bible and look at all the different ways in which it's used. Um, the Bible as a whole is very clear that God, you know, what his view of sex is. According to God, there is only one healthy way for human beings to express themselves sexually. And that way is in the context of a marriage union between one man and one woman. This is how God designed us. Anything else, according to God, is an expression of our sinful nature. It's not what God intends for us. Now, if you struggle with this, if you're really struggling with what I'm saying right now from the pulpit, I want you to know I understand the tension. 
I understand the tension because we live in a world that is and always has been very sexually confused. All sin feels right to us at the time. Our culture has a tremendous ability, a power to shape the way we think about these issues. And we should not be surprised that the world wants us to accept different definitions and lifestyles. But I believe the Bible is God's word. And I trust what he says about this and everything else. And the church needs to stand its ground on these issues. Because we don't get to decide what qualifies as sin and what does not. I also want you to know this has always been a problem. This is not unique to 21st century Western culture. I don't need to remind you that some Christians once tried to defend slavery from the Bible. And that that was clearly wrong. They were wrong for doing that. It's the very next sin that Paul mentions. Likewise, it is wrong today that some Christians are trying to defend homosexuality from the Bible. Same thing, different topic, different era. And I guarantee that whatever culture you were raised in, whatever time period you were raised in, you would have no problem with some of those things being listed as sins, but one or two of them might bother you. Because that's who we are. And that's why the law is equally condemning of us all. That's kind of the point Paul makes here. He's arguing with these so-called teachers of the law by saying that the law is pretty clear about itself. We know what the law says. We may not like it. We may struggle with it. We may completely disregard it and say it's, it's garbage. But we know what God forbids. He's very clear about it. That's Paul's point. That's the very point he's making. Why do we have the law? Paul argues that the law exists to show us our lawlessness. Such as the sins that he mentions and he continues. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been trusted. And this is how our text for today ends. Paul says to Timothy that good doctrine lines up with the gospel message. And that is probably the most important criteria for us to decide if something is good teaching or bad teaching. Does it fit with the gospel of the kingdom? The good news about Jesus Christ. Does it fit? And so what I want to talk uh, briefly about is the relationship between the law and the gospel. Because this tends to be 
a sticking point for many Christians. Okay, I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul sees no contradiction between the law and the gospel. The moral code of the gospel is no different than the moral code of the law. Embracing the gospel of grace does not give us the freedom to reject God's law. To say that it is no longer relevant to our lives. The law does not become useless when we become a Christian. There is something the law can't do. It can't save us. It cannot redeem us. It cannot make us righteous. And in Christ, it can no longer condemn us. In terms of salvation, the law is powerless. But in terms of moral standards, the right way to live, the way God wants us to be human, the law and the gospel speak the same language. And this is important because we get this... This is very easy to get wrong in the church, the way we think about the gospel. God takes us the way He finds us. Okay? There is no criteria for you to enter the kingdom of God except humble and empty. Whatever type of sinner can be redeemed. There is no type of sinner that is beyond God's grace. Okay? So He takes us the way He finds us, but... God never leaves us the way He found us, right? What kind of good news would that be? Oh yes, God forgives you and you can just continue to be the same broken mess that you were before and He has no intentions of making you better. That's not, that's not the gospel. God worked salvation for us To make us more like Christ. And so the law of God remains a useful tool for both the Christian and the non-Christian. For believers, it helps guide us towards the life that God wants for us. For believers and unbelievers, it shows us our sin and drives us towards Christ. I want us to look quickly at what Paul says In 1 Corinthians 6, he uses a similar list of sins, but notice what he says. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says quite clearly, none of these people go to heaven. And that should make us nervous because everyone in the room falls into at least one of these groups at some point in our lives. But look at what he says next. Verse 11. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Past tense, he says, in other words, believers are no longer defined by their sin. Now, we are still in the struggle. I am still a sinner, practically speaking, on a daily basis. Of course I am. To deny that would be to call God a liar, because that's, that's who I am, right? But I'm no longer defined by my sin. My chief reality as a child of the King is washed, sanctified, justified in Christ. So, if we're going to fight the good fight of faith, we must know what God's law says and what it doesn't say. We cannot assume for ourselves what God is okay with and what He's not okay with. Right? We don't get to make that call. The world doesn't get to decide right from wrong. That's why we have God's law. Our job is listening to His voice, receiving His words with humility, and where the law reveals my sin, I must repent and trust in the work of Jesus Christ to fulfill the law on my behalf, because I can't do that. That is the only path into God's kingdom, right? But last thing I want to say, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to be humble in your engagement with some of these very difficult social issues. There is a lot of confusion right now in the world concerning gender and sexuality. And we should be patient and humble with people. But we absolutely do not have to affirm something that God does not affirm. Let me say that again. We do not as Christians have to affirm something that God clearly does not affirm. The world says that love demands affirmation. And that is not true. That is a lie. We can and should love every person we meet. Every person we meet is made in the image of God and worthy of respect and dignity and love. But love does not demand affirmation of a person's choices or lifestyle. It is possible to love and not affirm. You do not have to enter into the delusions of a broken world in order to show that that world love. Don't let the culture tell you that that's true. We want the best for people. And the best for people is what God says is true of them, not what they think is true of themselves. Fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know this was a, a tad lengthy introduction to um, this letter. In some ways heavy. Lord, I pray that um, as we consider these things that you would humble us where there is pride and a difficulty to accept what you say. I pray that you would 
soften our understanding. Help us to see. Lord, none of us in this room is better than anyone else. Father, your law is clear. Pray that we would first look to our own hearts to know the ways in which we have dishonored you. That we would seek your mercy. That we would rest in your grace. Father, help us to fight the good fight of the faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.